0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Be Data Lit, or BDL, the podcast. Uh, Alan and I are happy to have you back with us today. I am your host, Sarah Nell Rodriguez, and my other co-host here with me, Alan.
1: Hello, I'm Alan Hillary. Happy to be back as well. I'm excited about today's guest, and yeah, I just want to, yeah, I'm really excited. (laughs)
0: All right. I am very excited for our guest too, and I'm very happy. We're going to say happy a lot in this, aren't we? Overuse of the word happy, but we are truly excited to have John Agnon here with us today, who is not only my coworker, uh, but he is also doing amazing things that I think are pushing ahead what people are doing with data in organizations today. John, welcome to the podcast.
2: Sarah Allen, thank you for having me. And just to mix up our synonyms, I am overjoyed to be here. There you go. <laughs> that
0: is thrilling, John. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Oh, and and you know, and if you don't mind, John, for the audience, can you just tell us like how to pronounce your name in Italian? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah. So, uh, the the boring, you know, uh, anglicized version, John Agnon, can easily be translated to Giovanni Agnone, but I don't go. I don't go with that all right yeah we just have you like ever people.
0: gone with that that's no. kind of fun
2: no i mean it's an alter ego for holidays and family events of course but no, all right no, well halloween is that. halloween is coming up so i know i gotta get ready that can be your zorro type name you know <laughs> nice
0: giovanni thank you for being here today oh please yeah.
2: i will i'm gonna stop <laughs> responding <laughs>
0: No, John, thank you for being here. Uh, John, uh, we are coworkers, but we normally wouldn't have really overlapped in communication uh, at Salesforce. Can you tell people uh, who you are and what you do today?
2: Sure. So a bit of a long-winded response, um, but um, so I am... Uh, Currently, the senior director of what is about to be renamed as People Analytics Delivery and Insights at Salesforce. Um, Formerly, as of before this Monday, (laughs) I was the director of People Analytics at Tableau. Um, And for those who don't know, uh, Tableau was acquired by Salesforce uh, a wee bit ago uh, before Slack, which was the recent acquisition. And so, um, in the process of continuing to get everyone at Salesforce excited about Tableau, particularly in HR. Um, But we'll, we'll get into more of that later.
0: We will for sure. And the reason why I said that, we typically wouldn't have overlapped or even met but I started talking about the role of HR and data literacy and was really doing some personal research on it and trying to quantify uh, what turnover numbers could be. And my boss, Matt Ryan, I'm going to have to tell him he's getting a shout out on this, though. Nice. Uh Introduce me to you, and it just started some great conversations about the role of data, not just in your job today, but also in the roles of our customers.
2: Yeah, well, that's a that's a fun connection because I, and we should continue to make sure that we say Matt Ryan as much as possible on this, uh, I got connected with Matt through a former um, uh, colleague, just even still a colleague, someone I've written a few published articles with on environmental policy. Um, I'm a reformed academic, or at least partially um, in sociology, uh, quantitative sociology. And so uh, Professor Eric Johnson said, hey, one of my good friends works at Tableau, you should reach out to him. And here we are, Sarah.
0: Talking about Matt Ryan. Love we it. are here talking because of Matt Ryan. Uh, Alan, do you have any connections to Matt Ryan?
1: Um, I don't think I do, but I do have a question for John or Giovanni, but I know he wants to be called John. So John, (laughs) so for the audience, for the audience, could you explain, um, exactly what people analytics is? I think a lot of us know in the HR space, but, um, it'd be
2: really good to get some more insight as to how you see your role. Yeah, sure. No, it's a good question. And it's, like when when I talk to people who don't really know about data, which is probably not your, uh, your listeners, um, I always refer to it as navel-gazing, right? So it's, you know, we are like an internal research and consulting body inside of a company that helps folks, uh, particularly leaders, um, make data-driven decisions, um, you know, help them make decisions about hiring, retention, you know, understand, you know, how their workforce is feeling about things, um, help to identify areas of concern. Um, I really think about us as like being like um, just thought partners and and help uh, help leaders really understand how to make the best decisions and then the implications of those and tracking the impact of those decisions over time.
1: Yeah, and what data points are you using to collect that information? Because when I looked on the outside looking in, I'm trying to understand. I I have an understanding that it's what your role is probably doing is looking at the workforce. I don't know if you're using demographics to look at it or if you take or probably it sounds like you're also maybe taking some employee surveys and analyzing that data as well. So I guess what are some of the goals like some typical organizations are doing with their people analytics?
2: Yeah, Alan, good question. So, I mean, the number one source that you have in people analytics is your base HR data. So the like most prominent platform in terms of like notoriety now and kind of a market leader is Workday. Um, And so Workday is like our number one source of data. So, you know, they're big database um, that um, can also be used. It's not just a system of record. It's actually like an ongoing, like, you know daily use portal with insights and, excuse me and dashboards reports, but we use that. We pull the data out of there um, to look at things you know in a point in time perspective so like, hey, like what are the you know what's the female representation of leaders today, right? We'll also look at things historically to say, hey, over the last 12 months, what's our trending 12 month turnover? Um, so you don't just look at things at a point in time you know you aggregate over time this is where Tableau becomes really powerful and helpful as a tool in our field and then, you also have the ability to say, "Hey, what's going to happen in the future?" Because everyone likes a soothsayer, right? And so um, you do your best to forecast. Either you know what's your attrition going to be, and, and and how do you need to staff up on the recruiting side to to bring in necessary headcount for backfill and to grow the organization. So so yeah, uh, workday H HCM HRIS systems. Those are like your number one source. But also, I think at one point in my prior role at the Gates Foundation and people analytics, we had like 15 different data sources in HR, right? So there's so many things like sometimes your benefits data is in, in another system, your security or badging data, or your facilities data is in another system, uh, survey platforms, you know, you might have multiple of them, um, you know, different platforms doing your exit survey versus your onboarding survey or your employee engagement survey or an organizational network survey. So, um, we, we're we we're kind of, we're, we're little data hackers too, is the other thing that we do in people analytics. Um, so we're always munging and, and making things work.
0: Would you say that's typical though to a lot of HR teams or do you think some of those things you just described and what you're looking at, uh, do you think you're ahead of the curve or strictly in the middle?
2: In terms of like the various sources and things you look at,
0: that and also the metrics you're looking at
2: yeah you know um, I spent a lot of time when we were at the Gates Foundation because it was really early on in people analytics and we were just trying to constantly figure out like where do we sit compared to everyone else right like how are we measuring what are we doing and we spent years like, going to conferences developing connections connecting with you know um, other organizations and like you know and leveraging those data points for where we are now at Salesforce um, I'd say, definitely like at the forefront, in my opinion, and some of the stuff we're doing, like, you know, um, particularly like a more mature people analytics function, we'll have a dedicated data engineering uh, group. We have that at Salesforce, which is great. We don't ha- use a centralized IT function. So we can be nimble, which is what you need to do. Like leaders don't want you to wait for sprint cycles to get them answers. Like they want things now. Um, and so, um, yeah. And then also just some of the, we, we, we also have a good amount of, research capabilities and data scientists within our people analytics function at Salesforce. And, and that's like, on a maturity curve, that's like, farther down the line. So I'd say we're definitely um, where, where a lot of folks would like to be.
0: For me, I, I think that's really interesting. And one of the reasons why I wanted to ask that question is Al and I and I talk a lot about uh, the future workforce and the ways that people get from where they are today to a job at a place like, say, Salesforce. And how often do you track data like non-traditional type people as as a differentiator from more traditional path people within that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't formally know the answer to that, to be honest. Um, but I've heard, uh, you know, Salesforce, similar to you know Google, Facebook, you know, are are removing a lot of those credential barriers for particularly the dev roles, uh, which kind of drive the tech sector. And so um, I don't know how that looks. I think our recruiting analytics team, which you know, speaking in terms of maturity curves, right, right, like. Everyone always starts with a recruiting analytics because you got to grow your business, but um, ours is very mature. And so they, they do so much work and, it, and it's really its own separate silo. So I don't know a lot of their depth very well, um, but I think that's something that, that our team would know.
0: Yeah. yeah. I def- oh, sorry, Alan. You need um, to be heard.
1: <laughs> oh no, it's fine. I just wanted to add to that because you think you confirmed something. So I was my, one of my questions was, you know, like when you deal with sales, you have like your prospects and your existing customers. So in your world, I would see that as current employees versus, um, I guess, applicants. Um, so that data lives separately. It sounds like that data lives separately.
2: Um. So it can. So you know, like in the workday world, you have you can have your like base HCM uh, module and then your ATS or your applicant tracking system, which would be that recruiting portal. You know, some organizations, you know, they'll use Workday for something, and then they'll use like, you know, um, IBM, BrassRing, Connexa for their ATS, right? But so that data is all in one system for us at Salesforce, but there's a separate team that's pulling it out, analyzing it. And they, they go, they I mean, they go real deep. Um, and so, you know, we have some level of overlap, but you know, like for example, one cool thing they do, and this kind of gets to something that I I realize I failed to answer from your first question, Alan, was around you know like looking at demographics, right? So, like our recruiting team, for example, which is becoming more common, I mean, we look at uh, every week a recruiting funnel to see, you know, hey, how are we recruiting females through the pipeline, right? Is there a place where we're losing female developers, and that maybe we need to be looking more, dif- more differently at either the screening process or or the manager interview or you know, like the various stages, right? And we'll look at those for not just for females, but for um you know, employees of color, um, US, non-US employees, like a lot of thoughtfulness goes into that and in trying to make sure that we're course correcting.
1: Yeah, because when I look at pathing, you know, trying you know, I know on a high level that's organizations or even the industry itself, they have like perceptions or a certain you know, we were just, Sarah and I were just talking about this earlier that, you know, a lot of times there's been predefined paths on narratives as to who has a successful data career or who should be in a certain career vertical. And it's just like looking at that data, you may have like your, you know, organization can have their current customers, you know, and maybe some of the qualifications or education attainment that they have, and then look at their um, job pool and maybe... I guess that one of the things is that maybe people can start deviating from that to kind of focus a little bit more in those non-traditional routes. I do believe that our today's economy in terms of education, that there can be other qualifications to get at certain roles. And I just, I guess now to get us back to one of the questions is how has, you know, how has Tableau been looking at that? If you can answer it, um, in terms of acknowledging that.
2: Yeah. So I, you know, Honing in on Tableau specifically, which it sounds like was your question. Um, yeah. I if know you from can. if
1: you want to talk to the industry, that's fine. But I was, I am curious about like how your organization is doing it.
2: Yeah. So from what I know of, um, you know, before the acquisition, um, Tableau was starting to, you know, be a little more broad in how they're defining experience for particularly those critical dev roles, right? Um, you know, really trying to be more more inclusive of, of non-traditional backgrounds, um, you know, also think using, using the, um, the college pipeline and interns, um, you know, and probably in the way that's more common in the tech industry too, which is, you know, you don't want to bring in interns unless there is a pathway to permanent employment. Um, and so um, really a lot of focus there on, you know, getting the most diverse pool of, um, of interns as possible right since you know that it's a it's a great way to to inject some some youthful vigor the new perspectives you know non-traditional approaches to the work and so i think that's increasingly common particularly within the tech sector so
0: i want to make it a little more personal and kind of focus on you a bit more john uh People analytics and HR historically hasn't been as data driven or focused as what you're describing right now. What about you? Have you always been into data?
2: Oh, I, I like that. Uh, yes, uh, great <laughs> question. Um, I from yeah, I remember just like, and I think we've probably talked about this separately, Sarah. Like, where my first job was. Um, um, first, like really paid job that didn't involve like cutting someone's grass or helping them with landscaping or groceries was uh, a paper route when I think I was in sixth grade. And the first thing I got excited about was I'm going to get $40 a month to deliver these papers every day, which means I can go buy baseball cards. And I loved baseball cards because there were stats on the back. And like I just ate it up. I loved the stats. I loved like baseball cards. And I don't even love baseball, but I just loved baseball cards. Um, and just like the idea that like you could split those stats by like how they were doing like versus left-handed pitching or right-handed, and I was like, that's amazing! Like I'm in. I want to know about that. And so I started getting really into like any anything that would give me stats. Um, it was just great, and like really enjoyed math and and numbers. Like and even today, like and people always make fun of me for this, but I love doing my taxes. I do it like as soon as I can.
1: Okay, so um, you know what? I'm like, no, it's I used I, I used to be like that too.
2: I, I love Alan. Like,
1: you're my guy. The <laughs> only reason that I have lost that, I guess, vigor for, it is I blame it on the pandemic
2: or just, like <laughs> other things. But no, I used to love doing my taxes too. Do you use TurboTax? No, this is this is where again it's gonna like probably make you sad. Like I love doing by paper. Like I still what? I still submit my PDFs. Like I just like uh, I, okay. I like getting into the documents. Like oh total nerd fest. Um, eat it up.
1: All right, so someone has actually trumped me on. Harvard, <laughs> so
2: <laughs> no, 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 like not, a not a yeah. competition. I don't
1: I even know part. what
0: to say to either of you right now. <laughs> that you both get joy from taxes. I think you are in a very minor demographic on that one.
1: It's oh. to calculate. It's to calculating and just figuring out. You know, and it's not even that um taxes. I don't think are that. What's the word um. Um, it's not that complex. Well, some of it is, but most of it isn't actually. I don't know if you agree, John, but.
2: No, totally. They're like story problems, Alan, right? You're just like, and they usually send you down this like deep well of like other documents to ultimately tell you, you you don't qualify. But um, yeah, no, it's, I also like enjoy it so much. I used to volunteer to do other people's like friends and family and like. Oh, I haven't gone that far life yet. Life has so. gone to, away from that. So I, I don't do that anymore, but. Um, that's my deep dark secret. But that look yes. look what you've done, Sarah, asking that question.
0: Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> now I'm wondering why you didn't go to school to be a CPA instead. <laughs> I
2: thought I wanted to, to be honest. But like so, kind of like going back to my paper route, um, like why I'm where I'm at here is so uh, I would listen to music during that paper route and like the stuff that I probably wouldn't be listening to at home as much on the speakers, but I remember uh i just loved public enemy more than anything um which like really as i got into college i was like i want to like i want to study like civil rights movement i want to study um you know social movements in general and like i found my way to sociology and studied that quantitatively and wanted to keep doing that in grad school and i just love data about people and census data and that ultimately led me to this work which is why i love the diversity equity and inclusion space because like that's stuff that I've been interested in for like what 30 some years.
1: Wow. Yeah. Speaking of that, since you brought up D D E and I, what um like how do you feel organizations are now leveraging data to help with their with diversifying their workforce? Number one, like how do you feel like that's been happening? going because and i will preface it with this statement it's like i know there's been a lot of tech industries that have promised to diversify their workforces um like five years ago and they've hit the five year mark, five year mark and they haven't hit their goals so what are your comments on that
2: yeah no good good question alan i mean i think the one thing that um just to kind of start in the the, the high level and then kind of funnel on down i think it's great that companies that don't need to be publicly announcing anything like that, right? They don't need to be sharing their data. Like the fact that they are, and they're willing to be put under the microscope, which means you're accountable um, to like, not just the workers who can, they can go wherever they want, but also to, you know, to shareholders, to society. Like that's the one like major thing that's been impressive about Salesforce is like, they, you know, you go on equality.com, you see their diversity data, they update it once a year. We're hoping to make that into a tableau viz in the near term, but right now it's just the wall of numbers. Um, and, you know, like they own that data, right? Like they own their targets around hiring and um, that's stuff that some people, some companies are really risk averse around. Um, so I think that's a, I mean, that's a generally a good thing for society in the way that like you only previously got that type of data from like the census. Right. Um, and so I think that's really great. And, and to support that, and I referenced this before, but you know, like from the recruiting side all the way down the employee experience, like there there's an there's a lens on diversity and you know making sure you understand your workforce and that you know they're being seen and heard, and you're and you're having a an inclusive experience for them. And so you know the fact that a whole recruiting team looks at like diversity funnels on you know where are they losing talent within a pipeline for various roles, you know where like does sales need to focus on which has a different set of, you know, constraints for their talent pipeline versus marketing versus uh, developers versus HR. Um, so there's just so much data there and so much interest, which I think is really beneficial, not to mention like how the internal employee experience is being uh, engaged with. Right. So like when you have employee surveys, you know, th- there is a lot of thoughtfulness given to whether women are having a different experience than men, whether, you um, you know, em- employees of color are having different experience than, than your white employees. And, you know, and then dig- digging into the nuance there, um, all the way down to attrition, right? Like, who are you losing and why, from what roles, like, does it signal, you know, canary in the coal mine, so to speak. Um, and so I just love the amount of attention on it, which is like why I started working with data in the first place is to be able to like uncover things like that and, and try to, you know, try to course correct.
0: So you you told us your story of how you got into data, starting with baseball cards all the way through listening to Public Enemy and then um, obviously the civil rights movement and led you to where you are right now. And I think all these points that you just told us really show us how much you are invested in what you do and how much you care. I wonder How can people, when they're in a role like this or other people analytics departments, how can they make sure that they are remaining unbiased? And if you have to report on something as important as DEI, how do you make sure that you are truly showing the data? What would you say people uh, should think about while doing that?
2: Yeah, good question. I mean, just one simple story. From early on in my career, um, you know, working on you know, some early diversity, equity, and inclusion dashboards um, using Tableau, which was fun, um, and still is fun. Um, you know, it was a common practice to, you know, kind of alter the denominator so that you know, if you only have, let's say, two thirds of your employees self-identifying um, their race, ethnicity, you only report on those two thirds. And so you'd say, hey, 50% of our employees are white, but actually it's less than that because you only know that information on two thirds, right? And so one of the things that we pushed on and um, and I think it's now just like best practice, what you should do is like just really clear about that. Like, hey, one third of our employees choose not to disclose this information, right? Which means we really have only one third of our employees that are that are self-identifying as white. Right. And so like really being clear about your numerators and your denominators, your scope conditions, right. Like the things that as like, you know, um, former academic, you like you have to do to get things through reviewers, but in the private, like, you know, the, the speed of business, people don't usually ask you those details, they kind of trust that you're handling it. And so I think, you know, making sure that you and your, your data teams are really clear on scope conditions and like you know, whether you footnote them somewhere on, on a slide or on in the caption on a Tableau viz or, or the equivalent of Power BI that I don't know. Um, and so, you know, I think that's like, you know, being clear about, I mean, and I'm just kind of like to redefine bias as, um, you know, the lens that you took on it, right? Um, but I, and I want to make sure, like, are you also asking about like unconscious bias in, and the ways that like, you may be looking to analyze things uh, from your perspective that, that you might not be aware of.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, for me, I was thinking definitely there are so many unconscious biases that we have. But I also one of the things I fear these days, too, especially in the world, the data that we exist in is just confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. That you're going to uh, look through the data and find what you want from there, not necessarily what the truth is in
2: there. Yeah, there's an echo chamber.
0: Yeah. And what I was thinking of while you were just talking about numerators and denominators with the data, too, is uh, how it used to be normal practice. Um, Alan, you'll have to tell me, too, if you had this uh, same experience. But way back 15 years ago in the world of data analytics, um, the omission was normal. And John, you just kind of alluded to that, too. You wouldn't say why you omitted something. You wouldn't even tell people you omitted something. And I think that's because people were so scared of the data. And also, it was so new to people. But I'm curious if, uh, Alan, you had that sort of experience, too.
1: So when you're talking about omission, you mean not you know, identifying, you mean?
0: Or if there's something not there, you don't call attention to it. You That's don't say like I'm missing this or anything. I feel like that was kind of standard practice way back when.
1: Oh, I mean, um, no, I would agree. I agree that sometimes, yeah, I would say back in the day, you probably did not complain or just said that something wasn't there. You probably, you, I think, in some cases, you were just so happy you had a job. You didn't, <laughs> yeah. You didn't, who
0: wants that spotlight? On yeah,
1: you didn't rock the boat or you didn't say anything. And especially there was. Um, I would also just say, speaking on behalf of employees in general, there is a level of distrust uh, with HR or or even making noise there because you feel that you're going to be flagged by your management going forward. So, no, I totally agree.
0: Yeah, and I was – oh, sorry. I was thinking about that, though, John, with what you just said is omission isn't standard practice anymore. If anything, you have to call attention to it now.
2: Yeah. Yep. No, totally. And I, and I think you know one other thing you mentioned, um, you know, kind of got me thinking, which is, you know, since people analytics largely is supporting leadership decision making, you we and we've had this happen in the past. I'm I'm, I'm not saying in current my current job, but in, in prior to my career, you know, where people will say, hey, we we need evidence to support this or that. Right. Where you're kind of on a fishing expedition because they've made a decision and you need to be in a decision support mode. Right. Where you don't necessarily feel great about that as a data analyst being told to come and find support for something. You usually want things to be a little more data driven. Um yeah. but it is a reality, right? Like you said, Alan, like so you know, you, you sometimes you just need to, you know, say, Okay, like I, I work here. This is the question I've been asked. And Actually was talking to someone in a mentorship capacity earlier today about this very topic, and I feel like that's where it's incumbent upon you know us as an internal research body to say, "Okay, well, yes, I hear what you want, but let me see what I can do, and it may or may not offer the support for what you're asking, but this is how we approach things, right being comfortable enough um to kind of push back a little bit um and I think, you know, seasoned leaders will understand that and because it's it's not a no, but it's a no comma, but here's what we can do or here's what we can show support for, um, where I think is really where you also like earn your stripes. Yeah,
0: I think. Oh, go ahead, Alan.
1: Oh, no, I was just thinking, um, you know, one of the. Well, I don't know if it's unconscious bias, but we'll put it in that category for now. But like sometimes geography can end up playing um, a limiting role of opportunity for some. Um, It can be like in some cases, a company can be headquartered in a particular Let's say the you know East Coast or West Coast, or even within the state itself, you know sometimes the company can be located in a suburban area it's going to cause more commuting time for people, and just some of the high level nuances there is that a lot of times people of color and are more in urban areas versus deep suburban areas, and so like I'm just wondering now, like with you know, where are we at right now with the pandemic and then some comp- most companies now are being lax to where people can work. Like what trends are you seeing um in the industry or the space in terms of um recruitment and the pipeline opening, so to speak?
2: Yeah. Alan, I mean, great question and spot on. I mean, I think what we're seeing for the companies like Salesforce that are being intentional about you do not need to come to an office, right? Like I think that ultimately even post pandemic, 95% of our workforce of 65,000 plus is going to be distributed and primarily working from home, right? And so the benefit of that, which the leadership has been really vocal about is you can go get people uh, to work for you who were in previously untapped markets, right? Like where, you know, like, you know, the the tech sector has traditionally been in places that are not the most diverse, right? Like everyone knows that and being able to be more inclusive for who you're recruiting and and having you know positive experience um at at an organization can kind of can happen um which i think you're also seeing i was just reading an article it was in the new york times around like previous to the pandemic you know like most of the tech jobs were in like five cities in the us right seattle san francisco it was like boston new york and austin or something like that right maybe um, and then there's been a just a, more of a flattening of where all the openings are because people can work from anywhere now, right? And so I think that that's a, been a great equalizer, like a positive thing to come out of the pandemic for sure.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I'm an example of that. I've been doing nothing but moving during the pandemic, <laughs> and it's because I'm allowed that privilege and. I think prior to the pandemic, uh, a lot of people weren't allowed that privilege at all. And I think that while people were invested in a lot of these efforts for diversity and inclusion and to create more diverse populations within their workforce, it's still hard to do unless you go to a model like what a lot of companies like Salesforce are doing right now, um, where you are going to where the talent is. Um, I think that was one thing that, I had a boss and I'm also not at the current or previous, I'm not going to say what workforce, but he didn't care where the talent was as long as he was getting the right talent and making sure that he was doing the right things to get that talent too. And I, I wish more people had that mentality right now um, because it's still a change. And Alan, you were talking about how it's by region, but I would also say it's by industry too. Like certain industries are only going to recruit certain kinds of people and not really look for a diverse talent of a pool, you know?
1: No, I totally, totally agree with you there. Um, And also, you know, John, I have another question for you. Now that Sarah's brought that up, like, you know, you know, this is Be Data Lit. And so, you know, like how are organizations like quantif, not quantifying, but like how are they categorizing their workforce in terms of data literacy? Like who is data literate? Like what does that mean? Um, Like how do you have data around that to kind of
0: start, you know, quantifying that? Big spotlight on John. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, we can uh, bring yeah. in Giovanni if you want to answer this. Uh, no, we'll, we'll,
2: we'll leave him out of this for now, Alan. He's he's real mouthy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, no, it's a good question, right? Like I think, so a lot of things that our team does on the people analytics front is like what I term enablement, right? So like helping people be data literate, right? Because, you know, generally, um, I don't think this is an untruth or something that people don't like regularly recognize, but your average HR professional is not the most data comfortable right? With the exception maybe of people in compensation, right? Who work with numbers all day. Um, and so we do a lot around data literacy, like uh, defined as enablement. So, you know, making sure that people know where to find answers, how to, how to pull reports, how to interpret things, right? Like what's a good comparison? Um, you know, 101 is making sure that people are mindful of dates, right? Because the number one thing you get in HR is, well, your numbers are wrong. You're like, okay, well, what date did you pull them? Oh, this is, well, that's not the same date that we have on these reports that refresh at X cadence. Right. So like get building up some basic data literacy skills, um, is really incumbent upon us, like to, to help drive and deliver what folks need. Um, and, you know, even from your executives who, you know, usually are really good with like pithy talking points, Like, you know, sometimes you have to work with them around data literacy, too. And so they understand how to interpret stuff and what a good comparison is. So it's definitely something we do a lot of in our space.
0: John, that was extremely helpful just to hear that. And it's uh, really confirming what uh, Alan and I talk a lot about with data literacy is it's the simple things that you need to start with. and. I like what you were just calling it, uh, data comfortable, too. Uh, I don't know that I've heard that term before. I like that, though. I'm going to start using that, I think.
1: All right. I usually use data familiar or familiar with data, but yeah, data comfortable. I like that.
0: Data familiar sounds like something we should be using for Halloween. What's your data familiar?
1: Maybe we'll ask that on the question. Oh, John, are you on Twitter so I can start stalking you or following you or
2: Oh, I, I am not. Um okay. only as an occasional lurker to get my local news from various parts of the US.
1: Okay. Well make sure you follow B Data Lit then. <laughs> on it.
0: Obviously we're up to date news for everyone. <laughs> but John, thank you so much for being here today and providing a different perspective. Uh I really do believe HR is incredibly important to the movement of data literacy. And a lot of what you talked today, uh, I have a feeling will land with quite a few of our listeners too. So uh, hopefully you will be a friend of the podcast now because you're my friend anyway. But
1: <laughs> yeah, when we need like workforce stats, we have to bring you on as a correspondent. So
2: right? yes. I am happy to volunteer some pro bono. Uh, people analytics skills to your endeavor. Uh, Alan and Sarah, this has been great. It's wonderful to chat with both of you and uh, uh, look forward to continuing to listen now to your podcast.
0: Yeah, we dropped
1: an episode today, so you definitely have to tune in.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, we will be posting this hopefully in the next couple months. And John, thanks again. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Be Data Lit. And if you want to go out and check our other episodes, you can find everything on our website and more information about me and Alan, too, at BeDataLit.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at bdatalit. Thanks again.
1: Thanks, everyone.
0: Have a great day.